welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Ghostbusters 2, one of the great New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day movies. It's a 1989 American supernatural comedy film directed and produced by Ivan Reitman. It was written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis again, Rick Moranis, Ernie Hudson, and Annie Potts. We are talking about it with the fantastic Candace Jane Opper. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. And Candace Jane Opper is a writer, a mother, and an occasional visual artist. She is the author of the book, Certain and Impossible Events. I have read it and I love it. She is a repeat guest on this show. She has been on You're Wrong About as well. She's very much like a friend of the show. At this point, Candace is not a guest. She's like a co-host who shows up uh, very occasionally. She's she's a character in our extended universe the same way that Tori was in and saved by the bell. You know, she's she's a part of the fabric of the show. And I'm so happy that she's here to talk about again, this New Year's classic. Quickly, I want to thank everybody who supports us on Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Apple podcast subscriptions. You make this show possible. Uh, we're artists. We are writers. We are musicians. You make it possible for us to make a living. You make this show possible, and we appreciate that. And in exchange for you supporting us there, you get bonus episodes. In December, we had an extended cut of our conversation about While You Were Sleeping. For January, our bonus is going to be about the Christian version of the movie Saw. Did you know this exists? We did not know until someone sent us a, a proof of its existence on Instagram. I sent it to Sarah and she was like, obviously, we need to do a bonus about this. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about all sorts of other things. We may answer some of your questions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but that's what you get in exchange. Outside of just knowing that you're making the show possible, you get bonus episodes like that. So keep uh, an ear and an eye out for that in January. I hope the holiday season uh, has treated you as well as it can or in the home stretch. I hope that uh, everything is going well in your life right now or as well as it can be. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. I'm still not sure about what vibe I'm expecting for 2023. And I was born in 1983. So just saying out loud, 2023 feels like science fiction still. But we'll see what this year holds, I guess. Before we start, I just want to remind you that you, my friend, are good. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being with us. Let's get into Ghostbusters 2. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Alex Ah, That's great. Who else's voice are we hearing right now? Other voice. I'm the ghost of Candace Opper. MVP. How many, how many times have I been? I think this is time number six for me. Yes. Yeah. So. Who cares? After five, who's counting, really? You're in one in 20 of our episodes. Yeah, yeah that's nice. That's it. It's perfect. It's great. This is a really great stretch. I didn't, we didn't obviously plan this, but like three of our four December movies have a lot to do with the 80s being concerned about people with accents. Mm, 
Yeah, great point. Well, you never know when a Carpathian is going to slip in. You know what I'm saying? You feel me? <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. It's like, you, you know, if one Carpathian is in the bowl of Skittles, are you going to eat any Skittles? No. Yeah, right. probably. And Carpathian is kind of like a thinking screenwriter's way of saying vampire i feel like it isn't dracula from carpathia or at least vlad the impaler was or something well vlad and you know that what is what's a funny what's a funny crossover we're jumping right into the details of the movie but what's a funny nod is the carpathian was the name of the rescue ship that went to go pull the bodies out of the water after the titanic the carpathia yeah Carpathia. yes yes it's less sinister if it's the place not the person Oddly. <laughs> All right. So, Candace, before Sarah walks us through the plot, can you tell us, I guess, first of all, just like why thematically we're watching Ghostbusters 2 when we are, and then what your relationship to Ghostbusters 2 is? Okay. So, I had suggested this to Sarah probably almost a year ago because I was like, you know what's a really underrated New Year's movie? Ghostbusters 2. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not a lot of New Year's movies, you know? Yeah. I think the ones that are, are, like, explicitly about New Year's, but this is very much like New Year's is just sort of in the background, like, and Mm -hmm. happens to be happening on the night that that shit is going down in Ghostbusters 2. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of put it on Sarah's radar a while ago. I was like, I want to talk about this as a New Year's movie. But also... I feel like it's a really underrated sequel. I think it's fucking hilarious. And Mm -hmm. I know it's... Obviously, Ghostbusters is a much-loved, iconic movie of the 1980s. And I'm sure we could say a ton about that. And I'm sure a lot of people have also. But like, I feel like Mm -hmm. this is an underappreciated sequel for a lot of reasons. And so I think it's more fun to talk about that, even though I I really Mm love the original Ghostbusters and it was hugely influential to me. So I was... That came out in 84. I probably saw it like a year later on VHS, um, which would have made me like five years old. And Mm. Bill Murray as Pete Venkman was my first crush. And I know this, like I don't actually remember feeling that, but there was a cassette floating around my house for a long time of me recording myself on my brother's stereo saying that I had a crush on Pete Venkman. As a five-year-old. So like Ghostbusters was just... And what I love about the story (laughs) is that you went into a closet in order to do this, right? You like went into a closet and whispered. Yes, it's true. I recorded it in a closet. So on the nose. (laughs) Which is so true to my first crush feelings. Like honestly, until I was like... 29, my response to a crush was to like get into a closet and record myself whispering about it. <laughs> and record yourself. <laughs> Which is funny because like it, it's a very private thing, but I'm recording it on a cassette tape, which will then be listened to in a very public way. <laughs> With my older brothers. When they read your will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I think that I probably had a more real-time experience with Ghostbusters 2 because I was, I guess, maybe nine when it came out and I saw it in the Mm -hmm. theater. And so it was definitely an anticipated uh, sequel for me. I saw this in the theater as a child. So like, I, I came into this movie at the same time you would have come into Ghostbusters. Yeah. One of the benefits of watching this movie now, I haven't seen it in a long time, was they do a lot with little Rai Egon smiles in this movie that I did mm-hmm. not, I have not appreciated in the past. <laughs> Sarah Marshall, yes. can you take us on a journey in the Ecto-1 or maybe Ecto-2 and yeah. uh, uh, take us through 19, late 1980s New York? 
Or maybe even the Ecto Cators after they get <laughs> properly franchised. <laughs> yes, I watched this movie two hours ago, but I feel like there's going to be a lot of stuff Candace is going to have to correct me on because, like, she knows the story. And it's until I've seen something 10 times, story slips out of my brain. It's very funny. So <laughs> Ghostbusters 2 takes place in the sad aftermath of Ghostbusters 1, where it's like, oh, guess what? Uh, Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray broke up and she had a baby with someone else and then he left her abruptly. And Ernie Hudson and Dan Aykroyd are performing at children's birthday parties and children are bored of them and want <laughs> He-Man. And Bill Murray is hosting like a cable access talk show featuring as his guest, our favorite character actor, Kevin, Kevin Dunn. Dunn. <laughs> I love, like, we must be the only podcast that loves Kevin Dunn this much. <laughs> it turns out to be right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are other podcasts that love Kevin Dunn to some extent, but nobody loves Kevin Dunn like we love Kevin Dunn. <laughs> Kevin Dunn looks great in this movie. Yeah, this is around the era that he was on, like, the second ever episode of Seinfeld. Mm. He's a very smoochable soft boy in this movie. Ah, that's so true, like a seal. And he turns out to be an accurate psychic, so we love that. Best yeah. of all, Dan Aykroyd is running an occult bookshop in St. Mark's Place. So I really feel like he's made it, you know? Like, that's isn't that the dream? They're open till midnight on Saturdays. It's yeah. really tremendous. Like this movie begins with Ray running an occult, an occult bookstore in St. Mark's, like just amazing. And then ends in them all effectively doing slime acid together. Like that's yes. how this, this is like an accidental countercultural, the sixties ruled movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also he's going to meet so many hot occult women, but it also yeah. occurs to me that like this movie really reinforces the canon that Ray is ghost sexual and like slime sexual. It does. Yeah, I got that nod this time, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. So anyway, this movie is like, there's kind of a lot going on in it. So we open seeing um, Sigourney Weaver lose track of her like old school baby carriage with her baby in it after driving it over some pink slime. And the baby carriage rolls by itself. Do we think that carriage, like the use of that carriage in particular was like just because like carriages are creepy or was that a Rosemary's Baby nod? I thought it was a reference to the battleship Potemkin. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I was thinking uh, Rosemary's Baby, but I was actually going to ask my mom because my mom had a baby in 1989. There you go. Mm -hmm. I'm sure plastic had been invented by then, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like. Mom, would you have used this carriage in 1989? I mean, maybe she would. <laughs> I can yeah. see with like, you know, with uh, um, Dana's character that she maybe she prefers like a vintage look. Yeah, she wanted an antique. She's just yeah. so preppy. Like she couldn't possibly use a new carriage. That would be common. <laughs> I would also use that carriage, although you would have to worry about the sharp metal spokes being so close to the baby. <laughs> but anyhow. <laughs> you probably have to oil the wheels, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that thing handles like a Model T. But anyway, <laughs> so something weird happens with the baby carrie. She goes to her old friends, uh, Harold Ramis, who is back in academia, the saddest fate of all. 
And also, like, my big note is that, like, I've always, for my whole life, found it weird that Ernie Hudson shows up halfway through Ghostbusters and is like, hi, can I be in the movie? And they're like, okay. And then he's in the back half of the movie for no reason. And then I was like, well, at least in Ghostbusters 2, we've established in one of our first scenes that he's like in this movie and he's as much a Ghostbuster as anyone else. So hopefully that won't be weird. Totally. And then he just disappears for long swaths of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you're like, where's Ernie Hudson? Ivan Reitman spoke to that in the in the commentary, evidently, which I just read like a recap of the DVD commentary. And he said that like he ended up like accidentally getting so fixated on the Peter and Dana storyline that they had to go in and reshoot a bunch of scenes that included all the other guys. Because like he's like, I just became really fixated on this part of the movie. Plus, obviously, I would assume based on the first mishap in the movie racism. But the um, <laughs> he's like they had to reshoot they re- that scene where like all the photos burn Mm -hmm. and he comes in and saves them like they that was like a post movie reshoot where they were like oh we forgot the storyline about the other guys (laughs) right and especially (laughs) about ernie hudson (laughs) yeah Yeah. were you also curious when they go to court like why i was like is ernie hudson in trouble too like he just works there but no fortunately he was not this is a great point He's just employed. Maybe he was the wheel man for the operation. Yeah, it's like why something. why does he have to get in trouble? Yeah. You know? Very nice of him to show up. I will say if my bosses from five years ago had to go to court for something, I probably wouldn't show up. Probably not for them, but that's nice that he, he could can. show up to Jir at least. Probably especially if you were like a black man in nineteen eighty nine. Like why would you <laughs> why would you volunteer to potentially go to jail? Seriously. For a thing that you did not do. And then uh, just another quick note about seeing Ernie Hudson in the mm-hmm. beginning of this movie. I've never seen four men age harder in five <laughs> years than these Yeah, men. I think due to the success of the first movie. <laughs> totally. Watch just watch side-by-sides of these guys in 1984 to 1989. You're like, woof. <laughs> I appreciate that they just, like, look their age. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. They just look like middle-aged men. And they are, and they're doing Yeah, and I like that they're all, like, useless, childless, sort of perennial bachelor old guys as well. Because now if someone, like, is allowed to, even men, if even men are allowed to get old in movies, they have to become, like, patriarchs, you know? And if they're in an action movie, they're like, my kids are on that plane. My kids are on that boat. (laughs) My kids are on that bridge. And these guys are just fucking around. This is legitimately like if they just like put me in a movie and they were like, he's in the movie and everyone's like that guy. Yeah. They're like, he's the tent pole of the movie. And and he's the sex appeal as well. It might be too soon in the conversation to raise this question, but as I was watching this, I was thinking, I was like, is Ghostbusters as a franchise like the rise of the man child? Mm. Let's yeah. just let's just keep that an open question. Based on the fandom that was revealed by the Ghostbusters, what had girl in it? Um, <laughs> I think you really are onto something. I would have thought that just textually as well, but yeah. So basically, the Ghostbusters do call on the talents of Bill Murray. They check out the baby. They bust into the sewer and find a whole bunch of weird pink slime down there. They get arrested. Their defense attorney is Lewis, which is probably my favorite part of the whole movie. (laughs) In the past five years, he's been busy. 
becoming a it's lawyer. It's true. And but like, what is his closing argument? He's like, Candace. It, it ends with like, once I turned into a dog and these guys helped me. Once I turned into a dog and these guys helped me. Yeah. Lewis Tully plays a large role in the first movie, but he's really just Dana's neighbor. Mm-hmm. I, I find it touching that they like kept in touch with him enough to hire him. Yes. <laughs> they all went through something together. Yeah. You're so right. Like you, and I assume that you love this movie, and this is the reason why you um, pursued in part bookkeeping because of Lewis <laughs> Tully. But he, like, he's not only. I had thought for a second because of his profession that like he was also her bookkeeper, but no. he's not. Like he just is a bookkeeper that lives next door, and one time she goes to a party of his for his clients. Yeah, he just has like that hilarious <laughs> accountant's party. <laughs> Yeah, and they were like, "We need this guy." Well, I mean, you know, Rick Rick Moranis. Yeah, it's I mean, so yeah, nice he's, he's delightful. Yeah, give me a break. We're both lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best line in the whole movie. <laughs> this movie is also it is I mean wonderful to me because it has so many like classic assholes, class holes, if you will, <laughs> because the judge in this trial is played by Harris Eulin from Scarface and a bunch of other things that needed a scowling old man in them. Mm-hmm. And then we have, I think, David Margulies is the mayor who plays other angry men and other stuff. And then we have the guy who wears all the sort of nylon activewear from Wayne's World and has to be told <laughs> that Benjamin is no one's friend. Who I said to you, Sarah, via text, uh, happened to go to the same high school that Carolyn, our illustrious producer, uh, uh, went to in Stockton, California. And dare I say, Carolyn will eclipse even his legend. So, and I love I love that actor so much in everything mm-hmm. he's ever in, and it was a delight to know. But you're right, like Carolyn Star uh, shines bright. Yeah, it's true. The guy who plays the shithead in the first mm. movie, I can't remember the actor's name. The guy who like Walter wants Peck. to get into the storage facility. This guy was also in Die Hard. William Atherton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also from Die Hard, he went to high school with my mom. What? Yeah. Wow. This is great. <laughs> This is great. This is a family yes. affair. You did tell me that just the other day, but I'm still thrilled and surprised to learn it. It <laughs> never stops being great. <laughs> Our boys go to trial and are sentenced to 18 months at Rikers, which is pretty intense. But then fortuitously, some ghosts bust loose and start terrorizing the judge. Good Thanks. job. And he's like, I take it back. Save us. <laughs> From the ghosts. Like, apparently there's the been... The Scolari brothers! Apparently they're... Oh, I say we're named after Peter Scolari. And also, like, has there been... like just, There's just been a ghost drought, apparently, right? They, like, nailed all the ghosts in 1984, and then there needed time for, like, other ghosts to come hang out or something? Let's, let's backtrack a little bit here, because... So they give a little context to why the Ghostbusters are all, like broke and insignificant at this point five years later and it's because Mm -hmm. you know they've been sued out the wazoo from the city for Mm -hmm. all the damage they caused in the first one and it's like it seems to me that that it's this case of like convenient forgetting you know it's like yeah in that moment everyone was really grateful that they were solving the fact that there was like a hundred foot stay puffed marshmallow creature that like everyone saw but like clearly everyone 
chose to forget, you know, (laughs) how quickly the public turns against you. I mean, this is also like Die Hard in the sense that you can save everybody's ass and then they'll be like, listen here, McLean, I'm filing charges against you for destruction of property, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's like they they were all famous for a little bit, but then they got sued. They lost all their money. But but the question is, like, did the ghost go away? Maybe. My take is yes, to your point, Sarah, for the most part in 1984, they had some great success with their busting. Although all of those ghosts were then re-released into the wild and then like maybe fighting Gozer or Zool or I don't know, who knows. But in this case, the ghosts come back because of this river of slime specifically. So that slime is activated by hostility. And because the judge is yelling, like whatever hostility in that building is manifested by that slime. So like he has, he has sent those people to execution, the Sclary brothers, they're hovering around as it is, or like somewhere, Mm -hmm. somewhere. And then they like are brought into this realm because Mm. of that slime. And it's Vigo that has brought the slime. Oh. Yes. Yeah. It's a Vigo. It's a Vigo plan. I didn't even connect those two things. I guess it was like, yeah, both these things are happening in the same movie. I don't know why. Yeah, Vigo as as like a sorcerer, like wow. in in the image. This is like what we get in the the photography is like they see through some prophet, like active living prophecy. Hmm. There is um, this river of slime that he's summoning. Right? Is that right, Candace? I think so. I, I was thinking of the scene with the photography where they see the slime in that close right. up of the photograph, and they're like, "Oh, the slime is coming from him," and it's all going toward the museum. We should also talk about Dana's career. Yes, please. <laughs> Which is so- please do. <laughs> we, we're, we're four minutes into we're, the movie. Like, I, at least some number of minutes. I won't say what, but more than four. Yeah. <laughs> I'm cool with it. This one, this one requires sprawl. Yeah. Anyway, Dana's careers. Dana is a concert cellist we know that from the first film which is an easy career to just wander into you know you just kind of like stick around the right places and you get asked to do it one day and you're like oh okay and then you just like it right (laughs) no so it's presumed that she has spent her entire life working up to that point as most people who are professional musicians Mm -hmm. do but in this movie she is working presumably part-time as an art restorationist or conservationist Mm -hmm what I believe is the Museum of Modern Art or the Metropolitan? It's the Manhattan Museum of Art. Oh, it's the Manhattan Museum of Art. Yeah, it's near University of New York where Felicity went. Okay. Its imagery suggests, I think, that it's modern. Okay, so she's working there. But again, that's not a career that you just fall into if you have a lifetime as a concert cellist. Not at all. But she apparently has other skills. She's going back. Yeah, she is going back. Um, She got that job... Because she has an infant at home, but also a nanny. So uh, unclear the circumstances, but she's... I think Dana, not like like Sigourney, uh, comes from some money. Naturally. We can assume. Everyone's apartment reflects that they all yes, come from that they've some inherited money. something. <laughs> Lots to say about New York real estate related to Ghostbusters, for sure. <laughs> I like that she's in a smaller apartment now than in Ghostbusters 1. Than she was prior. (laughs) And I presume that she lost that apartment in the divorce. Yeah. 
Well, she lost that apartment in the explosion. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I think she was like, that was too much apartment for me. I'm going to get something more normal. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't seen Ghostbusters 1 in a few years. Well, that, that's also I was interested in that because that's also part of who they're getting sued by, I believe, is in some like probably like collective lawsuit is the people who owned that building because wow. they refer to it in the um in the trial and the, the courtroom. Oh, wow. Then it must be kind of derailing things for Dana to have been dating one of the I, for, I don't know the legal term. The guy's getting sued. <laughs> Okay, so does does Vigo uh, live in the painting, do you think? Is he just like chilling in there no matter where the painting is? Or was it like activated by being brought out of storage by Peter McNichol? This is a great question. Does he only stand like that when people are in the room? And then when there's no one in the room, does he go like live in a castle and have dinner? <laughs> He's just been standing like that for 1,000 years. Or however long. No, how long has he been dead? Uh, since like 1605 or something like that, okay. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's so. This is why he speaks in Max von Sydow's voice, is he's just furious from having to stand like that for 1,000 years. Yeah, he needs a foam roller stat. <laughs> <laughs> so Dana works at the painting conservation shop. She cleans paintings, and her boss is uh, Professor Janosch. What is his last name? Poe. Poe? Wow. It's like P-O-G-H or something. Poha, maybe? Janosch Poha, played by Peter McNichol, who's always wonderful in these roles. Who, by the way, was imitating Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice. (laughs) That was the inspiration for his accent. Incredible. Wonderful. Not, not required by the movie, by the way. Not in his ro- not in his role. Ivan Reitman did not ask for that. Oh, they accent. didn't write it like this guy has a giant accent. No, he came up with his backstory. It's, his name was like Jason originally in the movie, or Josh, wow. or something. I mean, I feel like without that accent, the character would have literally nothing to him. So it was a really good idea. Yeah. As problematic as this accent is for a lot of reasons that we talk about through movies throughout this month and our like terror of, of people who spoke with accents mm-hmm. in this uh, decade, this may be, as I was saying via text, the performance of the decade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so campy. It's also it's also Belky Bartakama style, which I probably had already been doing well with Perfect Strangers by this point. So mm-hmm. there's something in the air. There is that great moment, though, when Bill Murray is like, where are you from anyway? And he's like, the Upper West Side. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, he did study abroad for one year one time and he just got super into it. He just became one with the landscape, the people, the paintings. So at this art restoration place, they've recently taken this painting of Vigo the Carpathian out of storage. And Vigo's a big, scary, diehard looking guy. And he was apparently a very powerful sorcerer who was also very scary. And nearly impossible to kill, evidently. And nearly impossible to kill. And said something, what did he say? Like, death is but a window. I'll be back or something. Yeah, no, he's like, death is but a door. Time is but a window. So good. I'll be back. That's a great I'm going to say that when I die. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We'll put it on your um, headstone, Sarah. And then someone will be like, wow, 
And then, 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 and then, like one out of every eighty people will be like, "That's from Ghostbusters 2. What are the first two lines? Death is but uh, say it I again. I don't know if I have it correct, but I think it's "Death is but a door, time is but a window." I'll be back. Death is but a door, time is but a window. You are good. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's double check if yeah. that's exactly what it is. But yeah. Sure, I'll look it up. But yeah, like his it. last words are death is but a door, time is but a window, I'll be back. Good t shirt. And then he dies. He's like, <laughs> nice shirt. Yeah. And so his plan was to like hang out in this painting, I guess, until <laughs> the time is right to like create a river of slime <laughs> underneath the painting. And the thing about the slime, I think this is where the movie gets a little bit too high concept for 1989. The boys start researching the slime and what they determine is that the slime is very responsive to human emotion. And so if it absorbs like conflict and anger, it becomes very volatile and dangerous. And if it absorbs positive energy, I don't know, it just bounces around, I guess. This is like this power is the climax of the whole movie, basically, where they're like, we got to get another giant thing walking around New York City. And they're like, we got to make New Yorkers feel inspired and happy. So we're going to get the slime to animate the Statue of Liberty. And she's going to walk around crunching cop cars as if they're autumn leaves. Yeah, she's a she's a French A cab. (laughs) And the people will love her so much that all the positive energy will help me, Candace. What's going to happen? What? What is literally happening in the movie? Or like, yeah, what is the like? What's there? And then it's like, is the is that it? Just like makes the slime stop being a threat, and then Vigo is like, they just have to defeat separately it reverses the charge of the slime right yeah okay so like like the museum has been encased in slime it is like impenetrable they they can't destroy it with with their um streams nuclear (laughs) right (laughs) don't cross the streams yeah and then dana's baby is in jeopardy because vigo is like i want to be a millennial i want student (laughs) debt i will be put my soul in this baby yeah, Vigo needs a human <laughs> to embody. Yeah. Because he's he can't get out of the painting. So he sort of um possesses Janusz with his powers. He convinces Janusz that he needs to get a child. The child <laughs> to <laughs> for him to embody. And Janusz has a thing for Dana. So he also wants to get Dana for himself. So this is uh this is beneficial for Janusz. And so in one of the scarier scenes of the movie, Dana is staying with Peter Vankman because the slime has already come to her apartment through the bathtub mm-hmm. to try to steal the baby. So she leaves and she's staying with Pete and they go out on a date, at which point uh, Louis Tully and the fabulous Janine Melnitz, played by Annie Potts, have like a babysitting date or they're watching Oscar and uh, also getting it on. When Dana comes home from the date, Oscar is somehow like out on the window ledge. Like the window has opened and Oscar is out on the ledge of this high rise apartment building standing on the very ledge. I don't think this baby can stand yet. No. 
That baby is made of like, yeah, just sand. So something is like some force <laughs> is like holding it up. And then this ghost comes out of the sky, like this ghost with a baby carriage, which is Janusz dressed like an old woman <laughs> with a baby carriage comes and takes Oscar off the ledge. He's dressed like the witch in um, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Amazing. Then whisks the baby back to the museum. So Dana goes to the museum. She's inside the museum with Janusz, the baby, and Vigo when the, the museum gets encased in slime. And they're just in there, and Vigo is trying to do his resurrection thing where he shows up in the baby. And that's when the Ghostbusters are like, we need some large powerful huge thing to possess with positively charged slime what is the greatest <laughs> most unifying symbol of new york city and they decide it's the statue of liberty which i do really like it's like not the most obvious thing but it's like well she is on the license plate so yeah <laughs> which is where the inspiration comes yeah. from Remember, yeah, they're like, we need someone who does this and this and this. And then I think it's I think this is where Winston comes in is he looks down and sees the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And I think that that's like how they give Winston something to do. Yeah, it's like I told you guys <laughs> I should be in this movie. Winston also has a ghost train go through him. Yeah, that's a memorable in scene. Uh, the old subway tunnel. <sighs> Pneumatic transit. We also get to see the ghost Titanic docking in the harbor and all the ghost passengers getting off, which creates a lot of canonical questions that are very exciting. It's sure That was very spooky. Did you read it all about the history of that mnemonic train that goes through him, which is fascinating? No. So that was like created by like some inventor in like the 1870s who, without permission from the city, created a subway tunnel by himself underneath the city that went one block that went one block to like test this tube train out. It, I guess it worked, but he couldn't get financial investment because it was like too out mm -hmm. there. It was like too futuristic. And they just closed down the tunnel and it was found in 1912 when they were putting in the first New York subway line. Wait, when did he do his train? In 1873. Wow. Or the 1870s. Good Lord. And so they found it 50 years later and took out the, the, um, took out the, the train car and the, it's, it's since gone missing. Oh no. Wow. Where's our biopic about Mr. Train? <laughs> Absolutely. He sounds great. And part of the reason also why they spend so much time underground is I guess there was a whole other script so like Bill Murray was really upset about how this movie turned out because he was sold a different script. It was going to be a different script. Mm -hmm. And when they got there, like the whole sort of plot changed. But in the original, I guess in like one of the original scripts for this, they were really focused on it being underground for some reason. Mm -hmm. And part of part of which included Dana going to Scotland. I don't what? quite understand why. And then finding a group of fairies that all operated underground. And they went down and I think she lost her baby underground and they had to like come and like get her out of this situation. Were they like, we got to make a job for Brian Froud. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's not employed enough in the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, to me, one of the most notable things about this movie is how palpable Bill Murray's reluctance to be in the movie is the entire time. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Did you watch that interview? <laughs> yes, I did watch the Oprah interview. That was like when his sisters were talking. I was like, is this man going to kill his sisters? He was like, oh, 
did oh. not want to be there. <laughs> like that was a that was a strange moment. Oprah was like, "Are are making sequels bad? Because sequels aren't usually that good." And Bill Murray originally, like initially yeah. is like, "Well, that's a question for Harold." Yeah. <laughs> and then and then like just can't stop himself, yeah. and then just goes on to be like, "All sequels are worse than Unless the original it's a horror movie, movie." Basically, like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just does not. He's not stop. wrong. It doesn't mean that like this is not a funny movie, but like you know, <laughs> but I feel like okay. One of my favorite moments in this whole movie, which I think has been one of my favorite moments since I saw it as a fucking nine year old, is when he's on the show World of Psychics and so <laughs> he's good. interviewing that woman who also has a prediction of when the end of the world is, which is February fourteenth, twenty sixteen. And like she's talking about how an alien abducted her and she met the alien in the bar at the Holiday Inn Paramus and he took her back to his room. But there's like this moment where the camera's on Bill Murray and he's looking at her and then he just like looks directly at the camera for like one second. And it's just it's yes. everything like you can see so much in that moment because it seems like he's reacting to her but also reacting to like the script of the movie and the concept of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, I just feel like there's so much in that one little gesture and it's, it's so hilarious. Oh my God. Just Valentine's Day. Bummer. Valentine's so Day. Funny. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's been a, a Murray heavy winter as I guess it always is for us. Yeah. Down in the cockles of our hearts. And I guess I like all the like horrible stuff we've been hearing about Bill Murray lately. I'm like, yeah, I believe this behavior from someone who doesn't want to be in this movie called life. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You're like disappointed, but you're not like shocked or anything. No. Also, he's a man. So there's, you know, that's it's also not surprising because of that. Yeah, the odds are bad. One of the things that comes out of that Oprah, we're, what we're referring to is the cast of Ghostbusters 2 went on Oprah to promote the movie. And you can find the full episode online. Thank God. <laughs> one of the uh, so one of the things that Candace brought up is like every lady in the audience is hot for Bill Murray. Uh, and the second is his entire fucking family. Oh, it makes sense. They were in Chicago. Yeah. His entire oh. family was there including joel murray uh and his sister like everyone was there and like half of it is occupied by like his family asking questions of the staff of of the excuse me of the cast and uh uh, recalling embarrassing stories about bill murray and him being as as candace just indicated very uncomfortable (laughs) yeah he he was very unhappy about that (laughs) but it's a beautiful artifact Oh, did we end the description? I don't think so. Okay, so yeah, so it all it all works out. <laughs> Happy ending. The end. We play like one minute of Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. And then the movie is like, just kidding. We're playing that new song that we had made for this movie. And you'll be so disappointed. Okay, bye. No, Bobby, I had that, I had that single. I was not disappointed. What, who was that song by? Bobby Brown. They get Bobby Brown to put the song in the movie. It's huge for Bobby Brown. This is a huge time for Bobby Brown. There must have been an agreement where they were like, can we put Bobby Brown in the movie? And they put him in as a doorman, which is a really fucking wild choice, but not surprising when you find out that in the commentary, Ivan Reitman 
was like, oh, they made us put this song by MC Hammer in this movie. Like Ivan Reitman, as far as he's concerned, like every black singer from this time was just like the same person. And they were like, no, 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 that's Bobby Brown. He's like, oh, oh no. Like that's like where Ivan Reitman is. <laughs> Ivan Reitman, I guess, like we found out after the fact, I think Anna Ferris ended up talking about this was a, you know, was a creep. I think he creeped Anna Ferris. I want to just like make wall art or something that says like they're probably all creeps yeah you know like men of this era who at least work in an industry where they have like a certain amount of power to throw around just be like ah oh, they're probably creeps let's be real there's so much incentive to be mm-hmm. a creep and so little punishment mm-hmm. and if they catch you then all the people who could punish you are just also creeps and they're like ah let's be creeps <laughs> <laughs> can can we talk not, not to i don't i don't want to to under undermine that great and important sentiment but along these lines of the song can we talk about the fact that in the ghostbusters universe ray parker jr has released a song called ghostbusters yes. yeah. which is the theme song of the movie ghostbusters that they then bring to birthday parties to sing to children and dance. It's fucked up. Yeah. Very difficult to wrap my head around. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, I didn't even notice that until this watch because I was like paying much closer attention. And I was like, wait a second. How do they know this song? I think it's like, it's like his, it's like Ray Parker Jr.'s like purple people eater, but it's like based on reality, (laughs) you know, like he put it out at that time and they were like, Oh, that's a huge hit. And maybe it was just like a regional hit. You know, because like the rest of the country didn't care about the Ghostbusters. Maybe it was just like a New York hit. Or it was such a huge hit in the real world that it somehow made it into the Ghostbusters (laughs) universe via a river of slime. To the river of slime. I go walking nicely. I knew there was something there. That song is great. I didn't think so at the time. But of I course so. that song's great. Anyone who doesn't like that song is like trying to prove something. Yeah, it was me for a long time. I've said my piece. Let's talk about let's talk about the Ghostbusters as man children. Yes. As yes, a kid please. and growing up, I think I was just like so attracted to this idea of like these men who were like funny and charming and like down to earth and they weren't they weren't like boring adults you know, to me, like watching this. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I really saw that before this. And it's not like I have like an entire bank of like cinema (laughs) before this time. But I feel like this is a really earlier example of this like celebration of these these men who are and maybe I'm interpreting the the ghost, the paranormal interest as like a childish thing because Mm -hmm. of what Ghostbusters created in people, which is like mm-hmm. this whole franchise yeah. of like people, kids growing up in the 80s and being obsessed with this concept of like ghosts and then like following this franchise into adults. But like, I don't associate the same sort of like childishness with something like Star Wars, which you may be seeing in like the um, sort of expression of Star Wars fandom as this kind of like mm-hmm. thing that that starts often with young boys and then they hold on to it until their adulthood. But like that, is that childishness expressed in Star Wars? I guess I'm not like from, you know, I've seen Star Wars, obviously, but I don't think I'm like familiar with the canon enough. I think it depends on how you relate to Star Wars. Like, I think a handful of things are happening is like, one, we see it a little bit in the character of Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Like, I think like Han Solo is kind of that. Like, he he basically is, he's kind of a Venkman yeah. 
in how he presents in that movie. Mm. But like, I think like what, I think you're right. And I think what ended up happening is all of these guys who were starting to do like very well on screen, like after the success of like Saturday Night Live and SCTV, they were doing very well in like adult comedies as man children because it was like identifiable and as like anti-establishment kind of figures, yeah. but just by way of their like expressions of, of being like slackers and their expressions of independence or, or whatever, or liking the countercultural things like the occult, whatever. But then the studios at some point, I think were like, you know, what could really make us some money is if we also brought children into the audience, you know? Oh, and then we see like, I'm thinking of other examples of this. I can't think of a ton, but like uncle buck is kind of a movie that does this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't so much happen in these movies, but like eventually that kind of character becomes a lesson for this, as Bill Murray says in this, the straights. Uncle Buck is a lesson in not being so uptight. Arguably the entire later John Hughes canon is that because we have Uncle Buck, Curly Sue, Planes, Trains and Automobiles and Home Alone, where the ideal suburban homeowner is an eight year old. (laughs) Yes. And then it creates this like self-perpetuating cycle, right? Because it's like kids who watched it, then I think like what appealed to them was those kinds of adults, but then they aspired to be those kinds of adults. And every, like basically this movie created like Judd Apatow and his whole thing. And that whole crew crew of people. Totally. I was thinking about it from the perspective of like, a heterosexual woman who's like attracted to these type of men. And I'm like, I've definitely dated people who are like this. And it's almost to the point where it's like frustrating for me to watch like his report, like Pete Venkman's report with Dana, because I just want to be like, shut Mm -hmm. the fuck up. Where like every time she says something, he turns it into a joke. And it's like, I equally Mm -hmm. find that charming. And then I see, you know, my like, 25 year old self who was like in a long term relationship with a man who was exactly like that. And I'm just like, oh, God, this is fucking horrifying. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, did this movie like create this attraction for me to men like that? You know, this idea that like, oh, it's fun to be with like a playful, like jokester guy who like doesn't grow up and makes a joke out of everything. And she's attracted to him. You know what I mean? Like, and it was interesting watching that Oprah interview because like, even Sigourney Weaver like said, and I don't know if this was just like shtick or whatever, but she was like, I find doing the sex scenes with Bill Murray easy. And like, (laughs) maybe that's not fair to Bill Murray, but I, I do see, I see Pete Venkman as very much an extension of Bill Murray. And it's, it's not like I know Bill Murray, like a person, but (laughs) you know, Right. I, I feel like that is an extension of his personality, you know? And I I agree with regard to like, I feel like, and this is just because like this, maybe it's just because this movie imprinted on me so hard. But to me, like Pete Venkman and Bill Murray are synonymous yeah. in a way where like learning all of the things about Bill Murray over the past however many years is not is not surprising. Yeah. Pete Venkman would be a scumbag as a as a adult man. He was a scumbag as an adult man. Yeah, but 30 years <laughs> right. ago, we didn't call that a scumbag. Right. Like that, that was right, like, totally. like, like totally. we thought that was very charming. Like as good as it got. As good as it got. Now totally. very much, very scummy. Yeah. It was because that character, from a personality standpoint, was like bucking against the convention that everything had to be serious. And that was absolutely refreshing. But there were certainly like different manifestations of how one can yeah. do that. And I think like dating, you know, I, I've certainly at times in my life 
probably been more like that character than I would like to admit. It's probably fine if that's something that happens in like a passing phase in your life. But like, I think the thing that like become became revealed by like the Ghostbusters fans that were angry about the 2016 movie <laughs> or whatever is like some people have subscribed to that as their their operational like aesthetic and uh, relational ideology. Completely. And that's weird. Fuck that. Like, why? Why would you do that? It's so exhausting. It's exa- like to your point, like when he comes back and she's like, what'd you find in my apartment? And he has like three jokes before answering her very valid question mm-hmm. because her apartment like almost killed her yeah. baby. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like what the side of fandom. Well, there's many sides of fandom I find stressful, actually. But one of them is like, like when the news broke that Disney was going to start producing new Star Wars stuff. So like eight or 10 years ago at this point, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> Do we want that? Because like we had six movies and three of them were good. And that's pretty. I don't know. Let's just let her let her go. Let her die. And and all of this extended universe stuff that I've never bothered to read, but that people seem to like. But people were like, no, let's do it. Let's fall in love again. It's like this, I don't know, fandom for something that proceeds across like multiple sequels or multiple platforms or like across the decades, across different actors are really weird. I feel like because you're relying on random people continuing to do a good job with characters that you may feel you know better than they do. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense to me that it creates really strong emotion, but also it's like, really? (laughs) I think like a lot of fandom becomes more real to fans than the fabric of like quote unquote reality. And so the idea Mm -hmm. that like you're going to do something with it it just does not excuse reactive behavior, but can feel as threatening to some fans as saying like, you know what, we're going to change reality. Hmm. Tomorrow reality is going to be different. And they're like, fuck, like I am not emotionally prepared for that. Yeah. (laughs) The things on that level that I always think of first are like, for example, (laughs) Rikshi's older brother on Happy Days who went upstairs one day and never came back down. Or how the Torkelsons lost two of their children when they moved to Seattle and never spoke of them. Ooh, the Torkelsons. I loved the Torkelsons. I was thinking about this. I was like, I really like how all the ghosts sort of manifest differently. Like, sometimes Hmm. they look just like a human. Sometimes they look like Slimer, which is like its own being. He's like our friend now. Yeah, he's, he's our funny buddy. And then there's like... The Scolari brothers, which have like a human form, but look like grossly like animated and cartoon and have those like crazy big eyes and stuff like. I love how they look. They're all different. Yeah. The puppetry in this movie is really great. Many years before I watched this movie with you again for the first time since I was a kid, the only line I knew from it, because you say it so much, is fed him a French bread pizza, pass right out. I'm surrounded by so many children all the time at this phase of my life. And I say that very (laughs) You need to keep more French bread pizzas around, really. I know. They're not as common as they were when we were kids. Yeah, I feel like that's such a 90s food. We were just putting pizza on everything then. Yeah. Pizza on a bagel. Pizza on a pizza. Try it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I just... 
I love Annie Potts. I love Annie Potts, but I also like particularly love her in this role, like in both movies. And and part of this is that like my life has definitely segued into I'm a bookkeeper now as my day job. And like I have my own like little business and I, I f- that's a very administrative job. And I feel like I really relate to this. <laughs> you know, like existence of hers in a way that where where she's like, she's almost kind of the mom of them. Like she's taking mm-hmm. care of everything and like making sure things are organized and stuff. But she's so, she's so quirky and funny and just adds so much color and flavor to this movie. You also have a bunch of shouting boys running in and out of your house all day long. <laughs> it's true. I do. Like the same way men watched this movie and decided to be these guys. I feel like you've internalized some of her aesthetic. Yeah. I also just love that era of fashion. That's the high, that's a high compliment. Like, thank you. <laughs> She's way more like exciting in her fashion in this movie than she is in the first one. Yeah. Yes. Very inspired by the cartoon. You know, she's got like this like bright red bob and like these, cr- like she's wearing like the two different earrings, which I fucking love. And like just lots of bright colors. Yeah. She's, she's great. I guess like Annie Potts is uh, like any movie I see her in, any movie that was in theaters, she's like the best part of it. And any Lifetime movie she was in, of which she did like 55, she's also the best part of it, but they're always terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That sounds right. There's many reasons to do Lifetime movies, but it's, I feel like, I wonder if that was just like a stable work thing. Cause it's like, yeah. I'm an adult woman. It's hard to get jobs in movies that they're going to show not on Lifetime. Totally. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, I do think that that's like part of the cycle is like when you become what the the studio system decides is, is quote, unfuckable, mm-hmm. is you are then, mm-hmm. you're, you then have to go one of many different directions. And women actually can't be fucked when they're over 45. Our vaginas turn to sand. Yeah, I thought it was that they were like filled with concrete, maybe. I think it's different for different it's- people, <laughs> and it depends on where you live. And then in some states, there's an ordinance, so you have to seal it up. Yeah. I've got... Three years, you guys. Three years left. You got to make them make them count. Make it count, like they said in Titanic. <laughs> Sarah, I agree. I think like what they end up doing plot wise is a little too high concept to hold on to. Whereas, like in the original movie, it's like ghosts are bad. We have ghost guns. We mm-hmm. shoot the ghosts. Like that's like the whole. That's the conflict. That's what they do. Then there's a big one, and they have to do mm-hmm. a little magic, and it's fine. In this, I do. I actually have a, a fondness for what they were mm-hmm. trying to do because whatever mental math they put into like how this would be their solution is like hosing down the Statue of Liberty, blast. Wait, who's the musician Jackie they blast? Jackie Wilson. They, they blast Jackie Wilson because like in their minds and in reality, Jackie Wilson is inherently like capital G good. And it's the goose favorite as well. It will infuse this like stuff that can be either infused with negativity or positivity with the with absolute positivity. And then it it weaponizes the goo to turn bad into good and to return the good to good after they've been possessed. And when that happens, it makes them like they're on mom. Mm-hmm. Like when that happens, it's like they're on ecstasy. Yeah. And that is fucking bananas. And I like, I respect Alex, it. Alex, do you think that the goo represents consciousness? 
<laughs> I like that a lot. I I will say there was a scene where they were shooting from their pelvic areas in covering Yanosh in goo. Yeah, that, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> All of the boys were standing around in a circle, and they and there's one shot where it's the little spout of the gun is just coming out of Egon's pelvis, and they're covering that little man with goo, and he emerges and is like, "I love you guys," mm-hmm. and then Ray is like, "I love you," because they just bukkakeed that poor boy, and they all love each other now. And I think that that's really sweet and pretty uh, fucking gay. Yeah, because they're just covered in homosexual love. And so how can you not love each other in that moment? I I love that Ray says, like, I love you. Like, that's like this movie for like little kids. It's so nice. Like, I I love you, man. It's so nice. Ray has like ascended to another level where he's, and well, and also like he and the goo are in a relationship. Like, we can't gloss this over. Yes, but it's Egon that fucks the goo. Have we, I don't think we've mentioned this. Oh, is it? I thought it was Ray that fucked the goo. No. It's Egon, isn't it? Alex, who's fucking the goo? It's Ray. He says, because Ray's explaining all... Uh, uh, please correct me. I mean, you have more of a history, but like I, Ray's explaining all of the things that they've done to experiment. Mm-hmm. Right. And Peter says... Tell me you haven't been sleeping with it. And then they just don't answer. Well, they I, the, I thought the way that they like put the camera on mm. Harold Ramis at that point, and he sort of like awkwardly looks away. To oh. me, I thought that meant that he was fucking the goo. But maybe, maybe they both are. Maybe they're both fucking the goo together. <laughs> Well, I thought this was a nod because, you know, Ray gets a Ray gets a ghost blowjob in the first movie. I thought this was a nod to that. Uh, oh, like his um, psycho spiritual sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Totally. <laughs> right. I think Ray may be human being asexual. Well, that it, but he is he's just ghost sexual. You know, you just have to look at the yeah. full yeah, yeah, being yeah, yeah, yeah. spectrum. Yeah. He's he's like on a different train. I feel like possibly you can never go back once you've experienced ghost sex which is hard to say yeah once you go ghost you never go uh back as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. and i feel like ghostbusters 2 is more maligned than it deserves and also ghostbusters 1 controversial statement is like more exalted than it deserves it's like a very good 80s comedy I don't think it's as amazing as the legend of it has built it up to be. Mm, I find this highly controversial. (laughs) But I feel like Ghostbusters 1 is like a little bit less than promised and Ghostbusters 2 is much more than the critical verdict promises. I mean, I definitely agree with that latter statement. It's hard. I can't separate my childhood love of Ghostbusters from like a critical view on it. Like, I'm just gonna be honest. Like, I can't, you know, it's like... I feel like there's a lot of sequels I loved when I was a kid just because they were like on and they were dumb movies. And upon rewatching, I'm like, ooh, this is actually really bad. Right. But I can watch this and be like, this is still pretty funny to me. And obviously, it's way more sanitized than the first Ghostbusters because of the cartoon that came out in between the two movies, the real Ghostbusters cartoon. And that now the second movie was obviously directly more marketed to kids. But even so... I still think that it's it's really funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's as bad as I recall it being. And I think the reasons I thought that it was bad 
and I just went in this movie. I was like, I'm just going to enjoy this movie. And that was a really g- good way to go into it <laughs> because then you're like, well, I'll choose, I'll choose. And then I'll find all the things I can enjoy about it. And I, I do think it's like more maligned than it should be. And I think like Ivan Reitman's observation that like the culture of big movies was going dark and we were late to mm. that. Mm-hmm. It was because Batman came out the following week. Mm. I think. Uh, he's right. I think that there's like actually a lot to that. This movie is as sequels go is as competent and good, but certainly not great as lethal weapon Two, as like Die Hard Two. Mm-hmm. like this is as good a sequel, meaning it's like 75% as good as the original, Yeah, <laughs> but it's not like unnecessarily. It's not like bad or schlocky. Mm-hmm. It's just like a, in 80 or in bad faith i think that's the worst thing a sequel can be great way to say and also i think it's trying to cover new ground which people act like they want but we don't want that do we yes yes great i mean i just kind of love the aspects of it this where they're like really addressing like what would actually happen to these people's careers after the existence of this first storyline. Yeah. You know, like, I love that. I also love, I also love all, like, the class, you know, storylines in this movie where, like, Mm -hmm. there's clearly these rich kids and there's, like, this little kid there is like, my dad says you guys are frauds or whatever the fuck that kid says, you know? (laughs) Who's Jason Reitman, by the way? (laughs) I was wondering when I was watching this, because they have this, like, schlocky commercial that they make for the Ghostbusters that they think they did in the first one too, where it's like, mm-hmm. it seems like it's attracting just the average person. Like, do you have a ghost in your house? Whatever. But it seems like the only people who are hiring them are people who are very rich. How much yeah. do you think a ghost busting costs? I think it's $5,000 in the first movie. I bet it's like Uber and it started off really cheap and then it became more expensive. Right. But then is was it $5,000 to the hotel? And do they then charge a more reasonable rate to homeowners? I would hope. It was 5,000 to the hotel. Because yeah. if there are, if they're targeting the kind of people who are going to be watching like a tri-state ad, then like they want normal people buying this. Or maybe they're just like lawyers where like they only take big clients, you know, because mm-hmm. they know they're going to make a lot of money off of it, you know? Yeah. But then why are they insisting on such low overhead with the commercial? Like, I really feel like if you're making a cheap commercial, you're maybe offering cheap services. Although I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. At at this point, any like you're still shooting on film. Any commercial costs like too much money. Mm -hmm. At this point, like the fact that they made a commercial that's running on like Channel 11 or whatever is impressive. Yeah, I think like I want to see a compilation of like fake local ads and movies. And specifically, I want to see this next to the Maury's Wigs ads and Goodfellas. I was thinking of you while seeing this ad. <laughs> I, was, I was watching. I was like, Sarah appreciates this. This is Maury's wig energy. I did appreciate it. Yeah. My, for people who don't know, my favorite thing about the Maury's wigs ad in Goodfellas is that Scorsese like saw an actual local ad and was like, that's it. That's who's going to do the Maury's wigs ad. Then hired this guy who just like owned, I think, like a winterizing company or something to like make an ad to be in his movie. And that's just my favorite thing that's ever happened. (laughs) That is, it's so good. Well, we we know that probably that guy that Dana dated in the first movie is Oscar's father. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> we have no indication about who Oscar's father is, but we know that Oscar has a father and we don't know who that person is. This is a fatherless universe. But who, uh, in your view, is the daddy? First of all, I submit that it's possible that Oscar's father is Alexander Gudinov from Die Hard and also The Money Pit and that Dana met him from her friend Shelley Long, whose ex she he plays in that movie. Makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and B, nice. uh, I think the daddy is Dan Aykroyd's character, is our friend Ray, the, the slime guy, because yeah. I love slime and I love that he loves slime differently than I do, to be clear. But He's just like, I I feel like his character does a good job of animating the sort of the good feeling that I get from the movie where like every ounce that Bill Murray doesn't want to be there. I feel like Dan Aykroyd like really does want to be there. Mm -hmm. And Ray loves ghosts and Dan loves ghosts and they just love ghosts so much. And it's just nice. It's just nice to see it. Yeah, he's a real sweetie baby. I think I'm going to go with uh, Egon for this one. Mm. I almost said Janine because I love her so much. But I feel like Egon is so consistent. Mm -hmm. He's also just really smart and like just fell right back into academia, even though that's like a shit job. But like he's just like really into the work that he does. And he's just weird, Mm -hmm. but can also be very like slyly funny in a very subtle way like he does not Mm -hmm. need to steal the show but like he has it under control what would your dream egon date be oh great question (laughs) i don't know what's like the nerdiest thing you can do in new york city this is an amazing question that i hope we get (laughs) listener responses about yeah let's have um listeners chime in on what is the nerdiest date i can go on with egon in new york city you know giving someone a handy during the planetarium show at the natural history museum is up there Mm -hmm. or maybe like a cd Times square planetarium that allows that kind of thing Mm -hmm. is there such a place in my dreams (laughs) maybe just taking a black light to Times square yeah walking around seeing what's around (laughs) i am gonna go with janine I mean, she's just so, she's so great. Like, not because of anything she does outside of the fact that just Janine wants to fuck. Like, Janine is like, Lewis, I want a baby. Like, this is their first date, maybe. She's like, I want a baby. He's like, now, and they, that's the direction they go in and they fuck on, uh, or they get close. They, they, they get to a base, I'm sure, on, uh, Dana's couch while the baby (laughs) is high on, uh, French bread pizza. I gotta know right now. Also, it's funny watching this as a mom because I know (laughs) that babies that age cannot like eat that kind of solid food yet. Yeah, what about that? I'm like, oh, that's really dangerous that they gave it French bread pizza. (laughs) But her, her, like Sigourney Weaver's response to that is perfect. Like, she's not like, but you can see such a subtle vibe shift of her being like, fuck, they fucking fed the baby. No, this baby's gonna like puke and I'm gonna have to clean it up. Yeah, like that kind of thing. She is. And Jessica Lang are the two aspirational single moms of the 80s who are like, yes, I have a baby. What of it? <laughs> yeah, totally. She she can't be stopped. <laughs> she cannot be stopped. Sarah, I feel like you have a little bit of like a Sigourney Weaver sort of look to you. I appreciate it. I will take it. 
I will mm-hmm. believe it. I will think of it on dark nights. Like, I feel like as I was watching that Oprah interview, I was like, if Sarah put on like a bright red skirt suit and a pair of like black pumps, she would be like rocking a Sigourney Weaver look right now. Get into that and maybe get a big cast and a hospital mm-hmm. gown. Mm-hmm. At what point she's wearing <laughs> like a scarf like over a winter coat, like I, I think like a wool coat and she's got like a triangle scarf like on top of it. You're just like, oh man, this this lady's fashion is like quietly unhinged in a wonderful way. <laughs> I also love how every fall those photos go around of Sigourney Weaver posing with a pumpkin. <laughs> those are the best. <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Candace Jane Opper for being with us, for being a part of the fabric of the You Are Good universe. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode and editing it. Thank you to Louise Bickin for also editing the episode. Our, our, our family of people who make this show possible, it's growing. Louise is the member of a band called Corner House. She is a fiddler. She is a great friend of ours. And you supporters on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions help make that possible. So thank you so much. Thank you to Fresh Lash for providing the beats that make the transitions on this show show sounds so sweet we appreciate you lesh thank you so much happy new year to all of you we are happy that we're able to do this and we can't believe we're going into another year with y'all that is very meaningful to us find us on instagram find us on twitter our first proper episode of the year is going to be about newsies and uh i don't know feels like a good way to kick off 2023 does it not All right, my friends, that's it from me. You are good.